0: The Politics of Sound with Ian Carnegie. Master of the House, dowling out the chom. ready with a handshake and an open palm. Master of the House? Well, possibly. Father of the House? Definitely. My guest this month is the longest-serving Member of Parliament with an impressive 45 years of service behind him, Sir Peter Bottomley. So what have been the highlights of his extensive career? Why does he still do it? And crucially, what are his three favourite albums? All this and more this month on The Politics of Sound. Sir Peter Bottomley, welcome to The Politics of Sound. How are you keeping in these very unusual times? I'm probably fitter than I've ever been. Uh, Why so?
1: Uh, Partly because I'm cooking for my wife and chopping up wood. We managed to get through the back of the tool shed and the log store and the discs of heavy timber which had been there for 25 years and by swinging an axe and swinging a, a, a maul uh, we're getting more firewood and I am shedding pounds and you're ready for the winter uh, we haven't quite got to June the 20th because this is one of the years when the, uh, the solstice is a day early because it's leap year Yeah. Um, I, I think that really the, the summer goes on way past August so the winter can look after itself but you'll have enough wood We've had it anyway. Uh, As and when we've kicked the bucket, the people who come in after us will be able to turn off the central heating and use the log stoves.
0: We don't need to talk about all of that sort of stuff. You are um, the father of the House. You have been in a member of Parliament for 45 years, I think. Is that correct? Uh, Roughly, yeah. Looking back on that time, would you say that the coronavirus crisis is possibly the greatest crisis that the country has faced during your time in politics?
1: We don't know, partly because we don't know how the virus will work out, and partly we don't know how other things would have worked out if people hadn't changed. I spent a bit of time quite close to Norman Fowler, who was the Minister of Health, Secretary of State for Health, when HIV and AIDS was around. Indeed. And people didn't know what was going to happen with that. When you had BSE and wobbly cows, no one knew what was going to happen with that. I think what we should do is look back to the time when I was one, which was the end of the Second World War in Europe, followed soon by the end of the war in the Far East as well. People managed to reconstruct the Netherlands and Germany, which were completely flat on their back. We'd had a hard time, but they'd had a far worse time. And if they could do that in eight years or so, we can recover. So the simple answer is, no, it's not the worst thing in my lifetime. The worst thing in my lifetime was the war. What could have been worse are some of the things which have happened since. Which shall? I've mentioned HIV and AIDS. I've mentioned BSE. I've mentioned... You never quite know what's going to come along. Remember after the Great War, it was the flu which knocked out as many people as that had, followed next, if I may be mildly political, by the horrors of totalitarian, quote, communism, end of quote, which is no more communist than I was, I think we have to remember the number of people who died in the Great Leap Forward in China, the people who died in the gulags and the Stalin and Lenin repression. In my lifetime, we've had around the world the Rwanda-Burundi problem. We've had Cambodia and the killing fields. I, I don't want to go on too long, but there, there are many good things in life, but not all of life is good. Indeed.
0: Can we pause for a second while... Of course. I find the cake? Oh, wonderful! Cake and drinks are being brought in. This is this is. Thank you. That's water. That is sort of ginger beer
1: and
0: lemonade. Oh, thank you. I want to take you back to your childhood. You've spoken about being born at the end of the the Second World War. Your father, I think, was in the military. And my
1: father didn't have a mobile phone,
0: which was much like that. But if he did, he would have had that ringtone. <laughs> <laughs> your, your father was in the military, and I think by the time you were eleven years old, you, you had changed school something like seven times. This must have been incredibly disruptive. I mean, how did you make friends?
1: The the oddities of my life uh, up to the age of about fifteen or sixteen were common to many, and each each in their different ways. But a lot of people had had absent fathers or brought up by a a widow or brought up by a single mother because the father may have been a a transient friendship. I had parents who were together until one of them died. I was one of four children originally. Um, We got on well. We we get on well, except for the one who died. And my Uh, fourth sibling Uh, we get together very happily very cheerfully when our surviving parent didn't survive and died it took us about 20 minutes to sort out his affairs and effects you know we we, that that's easy the moving around I think we just took as normal Uh, by the time I was three we were on the Union Castle liner to South Africa where because government moved between Cape Town and Pretoria every six months We moved every six months. That was a lot of changes of school. Came back to England when I was about eight. No, came six when I was six. My parents' father went off to work in Karachi in Pakistan when I was eight. And my mother would spend six months of the year with him farming us out and six months with us. I was farmed to the local vicar, uh, which is why I feel at home in church. Uh, Then I had eighth grade in a junior high school in Washington, D.C., which may have been unsettling looking back, because I was with people three years older than I was, uh, came back to a theatrical boarding house before going on to a a boarding school. Um, It had its sort of ins and outs, rather more than ups and downs. I suspect I would have done better if I'd had a stable life. I would have done better at university. I would have joined the civil service like my niece, my brother, our father, our grandfather. Instead of that, I couldn't, so I became after time in industry and commerce, a politician, where I think I fitted quite naturally.
0: Well, how do you look back on that time? I suppose, as a child, children are, by nature, resilient. You didn't know any different. I
1: certainly didn't know any different, and I'm not openly reflective. I suspect if all my sins had been discovered and I was in front of a juvenile court and was given therapy... I'd be able to keep a psychotherapist or a psychiatrist or every other psy in the world happy for years. (laughs) But that hasn't happened. That have not been found out.
0: So I haven't done that. So I I, I, I will wait. You will wait, indeed. You, You went on to Westminster School and then to Cambridge University. And then you took some jobs that made, possibly be described as being in the real world you were a lorry driver I think you were a member of the transport and general workers union you worked in industrial relations it it seems a slightly unusual background for someone who then signed up to be a member of the conservative party well for a start I started
1: working for money in my holidays from about the age of 14 Uh, I would sit behind my uncle and a terribly uncomfortable metal seat, dropping potatoes every 18 inches, <laughs> left hand and right hand. But I got about 15 or 16, I was driving the tractor because I wasn't then strong enough to throw bales up on the cart. That sounds really good fun. Uh, it was hard work. I mean, from 6.30 in the morning till 8 o'clock at night, it was non-stop work. But the driving bar the bar tractor part of it, was that okay? Um, except you weren't going to the local market town. You're, you're going from the fields to the yard and the yard to the fields. It was fine. Uh, I could reverse a, a semi trailer v- with reasonable skill uh, i 'd worked at barssy Funfair quite often i 'd spent two summers picking hops i 'd worked at the port at victoria station and i 'd been around and coming back from Australia before I went to university, I worked for sixteen hours a day, seven days a week on a cargo ship helping the cook serve the crew and that was uh, pretty arduous I saw the world saw the sea both uh, afterwards. My first job was delivering ice cream to shops. Uh, then I started selling computer peripheral equipment. Uh, I was involved in helping a friend sell the world's second electronic calculator, which in 1969 cost, 68, 69, uh, I think 299 pounds, unless you wanted an automatic square root, but it cost an extra 100 pounds. <laughs> um, I moved that to industrial relations at the Steel Corporation, then marketing director of a light engineering company. And my yeah. last job before Parliament was putting neon lights outside theatres and cinemas in the West End, Yes, I, 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 got, I got into Parliament. Uh, I asked, but by chance, I was chosen in the constituency in South East London, which had the largest constituency Labour Party in the country, four and a half thousand members. I didn't succeed the two elections seventy four. Then the MP I had not dis- displaced sadly died, and I got a by election after Margaret Thatcher led the Tory Party. When I was thinking of joining a political party, I couldn't decide which one to join. Cause some like people like me are in the Liberal Party, they're in the Labour Party, they're in the Tory Party. I started with the Labour Party and they said I had to agree their constitution. So I read that and didn't agree with it. So I joined the Transport and General Workers Union instead, went to the Tories and said, where's your constitution in case I can disqualify you? They didn't have one in those days, so I couldn't disqualify them. So I joined them. And then one thing led to another.
0: What was it about the the Labour Party constitution? What was it particularly in that that you felt wasn't really you? It, it, It gave power to their conference. The
1: one thing I knew about conferences, even though I'd not been to one, is the people who go share time, prejudice, and money. And I didn't see why I should give up my judgment to people. I, many of my friends were senior trade union leaders, especially Bill Morris, who was General Secretary of the TNG, who, incidentally, uh, except when he came out for re election, no one ever mentioned the fact that he was black. You know, in current times, he just did his job. He earned the trust of people. They gave him their support. He did the job well. Uh, a brilliant example of, of why colour should be as important colour of skin should be as important as the colour of eyes or colour of hair so you may notice but you don't need to say that black man you want to say that man who was General Secretary of the TNG or that Peter Bottom who is MP for Worthing West uh, anyway so that's how that part led um, staying in Parliament this long has been again a matter of chance uh, the Labour Party kept thinking they'd get me out in uh, Woolwich West stroke Eltham. Yes, which Uh, became Eltham, didn't it? It it, it, it did. In 87, I think, the local Labour Party took the champagne out of the fridge and they had to put it back. And (laughs) in in 1992, uh, I think they held a victory party at 10 o'clock when the voting stations closed. At 2 o'clock came to the town hall to hear another of my victory speeches. Then then the boundaries changed so adversely against me. That you moved, didn't you? I I, I couldn't stay on. And on a rainy night in... uh, Worthing, uh, in a new constituency, I got um, chosen. But even then, when I got chosen there, Worthing, the biggest town in West Sussex, was Liberal controlled. The county council was Liberal controlled. So it wasn't exactly a shoe in. But in most elections, either the majority goes up, or my vote goes up, or the number of votes goes up. It's, 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 you work for success, in a bit like the music world or the theatrical world, sometimes the
0: harder you work, the more luck you get that's not original. <laughs> Luck plays a big part. Of course. Just coming back to some of those jobs and, and, and other things that you have taken on since being a, an MP, and the list is extremely long, but just to, to grab a few, you have been a, a trustee of Christian Aid, you've been chairman of the Children's Society, you've been a trustee of MIND, amongst many others. Would you see your brand of politics as a compassionate conservatism? I don't think it's more compassionate the people who go out and,
1: and make money and having made money come into Parliament to do something more with their lives. And I've, I've had the fortune that since 1984, uh, Virginia moved from being a part-time, very professional, psychiatric social worker and unpaid chairman of a juvenile court to being a member of Parliament, then a minister. And now she's, uh, besides her, pro bono uh, things which is as long as your arm uh, also is a success in a um, chosen head headhunting career so I don't go I, I don't go short of money in our first 20 years of marriage we had virtually nothing we didn't mind uh, we were happy uh, now we aren't poor and we're still happy essentially I haven't had to go out much to worry about cash I don't spend much and I don't need much anyway it's, it's, now it's there so that's different in general if someone asks me to give up something i've got because they want it more i'll say here it is and in general if they say will you please give up what you're doing and do this because it's more difficult or no nope, you can't persuade anyone else to do it do so i, I asked to join christian aid because they want to have a tory mp because too many tories were criticizing them for being against apartheid in south africa i understood that And the Children's Society, which then had uh, 100 social work projects and 1,000 social workers, Uh, they were having a talk on the council, the sort of person they needed to succeed, the outgoing chairman. And eventually Virginia said, I think you're describing my husband. So I went in to do that. Uh, And we did some fantastic things with family centres and various other outreach work. Uh, When uh, I was asked by Tony Christopher, the uh, retired General Secretary of the Indian Revenue Staff Association. If I join him on NACRO, I did. He was then succeeded as chairman by Navnet Dalakia, a Lib Dem. Um, that was interesting. You know, crime reduction by helping people not to go on committing crimes is, is even more important than backing the police, in my view. And on MIND, uh, again, that was a minister, uh, Sir George Young, who wanted to give government support to what the National Association of Mental Health were doing. Their then-General Secretary, Tony Smythe, was a bit of uh, extreme... Um, civil liberty person and George reckoned that if I was there there might be less success by Tony and more opportunity to give the support to the work that mine was doing which was and is and will be important so it's
0: ask and if I can give I will uh if I've got it and you ask you can probably have it I just wonder how much of an influence I mean your your mother was a, a social worker there is a compassion in that. Do you think that that is a, an influence which you take on in your own life? I, I think it's more common sense than compassion.
1: I mean, my, my, my father, in his work in, in civil service, uh, or for that matter, in his work as a rather advanced scout in the, in the war, when he nearly lost his life, um, the same. And my mother, I would regard as someone who used to talk about applied common sense. For example, when people said should have an older girl with a child, have a home of their own, she'd say, well, actually, if she comes from a background where there wasn't much family example, how about helping her and her child by making them lodgers with a family so she can get help and she can see how things are done and then a few years later be launched out to live by herself. But the idea that a child coming out of care, even without a child of their own, should be put in a flat by themselves with nobody with them to help them when they feel gloomy in the morning no one to help them if they come back miserable at night if they have a child no one who actually say when you have a child you need to have uh, patience just whatever the child does scream for three minutes three hours three days three months i've got more patience than you have i'm not going to hit you it's going to be all right we're going to get through it together or if you can take the things which i used to discuss with frank field lovely labour mp MP. who in virginia worked for 12 pounds a week and frank reckoned she was overpaid Uh, we used to talk about how you could be a five-star parent and he'd agree with that But say what are the things you get stars for you don't have to be perfect and eventually we were in some service in Westminster Abbey and he looked at me so I wrote it down and gave it to him and he thought that weren't bad it's only my list and it's not in particular order one might be get each child to school each day on time in the right clothes having had breakfast one might be if they're over six at least one day a week they have a known activity after school So, if they say there's never anything to do, you say, but on Tuesdays you go granny bashing or environmental studies or music. The third one might be to have a meal with another household at least once a fortnight, preferably once a week. So, your child sees you as the parent with another adult and child, you see your child. Socialization. Yes. A fourth one might be try to be on the best possible terms with the child's other parent. Whether or not you're married, whether or not you live together, your child's always got two parents. Try to be on the best possible terms. And the fifth one, which you may think is a cop out, is if in doubt, the child's interest comes first, but normally there shouldn't be any doubt. So if you said to me, was my mother compassionate? Uh, Applied common sense if that's
0: compassion. Yeah, but most of us have that. We've talked about you entering Parliament. You were in Woolwich West. Did you have burning ambitions of what you wanted to do at that time? Were you young and idealistic? Well, a day I've changed. I looked at my first
1: speech and I still agree with it. Um, before I was in Parliament putting these neon lights there's a problem about whether the family allowance, child credit, in effect, was going to continue. What should be wrapped up as the then Labour Chancellor wanted to do in the man's tax allowance. And that's crazy because it was switched money from a mother's purse to a father's pocket. And the father's pocket might go more on beer and gambling and football. And the mother's purse is more likely to go on food and clothes. So we ran that campaign, the family allowance movement, and to get family allowance for the first child as well, from the offices of my little neon light business in Common Garden. So I knew what my campaigning was. I knew people like Frank Field. I knew people like, who then wasn't in Parliament, uh, Sir Brandon Reese Williams, uh, who mattered a lot to me. So I had good examples of people to to try to follow. And curiously, uh, my grandmother's first cousin, Robin Turton, was father of the House of Commons then. He'd had uh, tried to retire after 40 years in Parliament he only got in because his uncle suddenly died and they'd printed the sign saying vote for Turton so they said any Turton willing to stand and he did and 40, <laughs> yeah, 40, years, later, he, 40 years later he was supposed to stop but yeah. his successor Jonathan Aitken had got into trouble over something uh, he hadn't wrong this time I think um, so Robin had to go on another four years and was fathered in the house for nine years um, but there are the other people who've done so, as Father of the House much longer. And there's Lloyd George who did it for heaven knows how long. And Campbell Bannerman, the Prime Minister, would have been Father of the House, except he was Prime Minister at the time. So, um, And you can't be both, is that right? Uh, the, the convention is you can't be both, partly because the only. I, listeners will know what a sinecure is. It's, it's when you're. In the old days, when you got appointed to a rectorship, you got the money, but you didn't have to turn up in the parish. The difference, no, merit, no responsibility. The difference between being Father of the House and a sinecure is that I don't get paid, but there's still no merit and no responsibility, except when the need for a new speaker and uh, the Lady Usher of the Black Rod comes down, knocks on the door of the Commons chamber, and the Father of the House leads people to hear the Royal Commission read, instructing us to find a suitable person. Uh, yes. And that, that having done that, I slip out of the clerk's chair,
0: and there's nothing else to do. In 1984, you entered Margaret Thatcher's government uh, as a Parliamentary Under-Secretary of State at employment. Given that employment was, at that time, headline news, um, was that a difficult position? No. and it, it, it,
1: Being a minister is dead easy. You've got the civil service to prop you up, point you in the right direction, you're not know, going to be a half-competent minister. I like to think I was more than a half-competent minister. Uh, I, I basically had industrial relations health and safety at work and european stuff uh, and industrial relations weren't easy because you had the miners strike on well exact 1984 it was that was the year wasn't it? Uh, we had some of the european proposals which they were trying to suddenly switch health or safety at work into general well-being and when they said you shouldn't work more than 48 hours a week i said how many hours do the commissioners work and how sick are they? And the answer, none of them are sick. they got an interesting job and they worked 90 hours a week. That was all crackers, but they were. Uh, people kept saying, why is the British health safety at work record so much better than anybody else? And why won't you accept our tripartite system? I said, well, uh, I'll tell you a secret. We've got a tripartite system. It's called the Health and Safety Commission and, and the Executive, where the trade unions and the employers and the outside experts work together. But don't tell anybody. We don't want you to make us do what we've chosen to do ourselves. Thank you very much. And on industrial relations, uh, well, one of my contributions was outside that. Uh, I'd I've been, I've been close to an organisation called ATD, uh, Ada to Distress, run by one of these great French uh, curés, looking after the families where the social workers have given up. So people had their children taken into care against the parents' wishes. And I got a group of these young people in uh, to, to, to talk and said, what's the best thing we can do for you? They said, get us extra learning to read and write and do arithmetic. We failed yes. at school. So I said to the Manpower Service Commission, why don't you do this? They said, they're supposed to learn that at school. They're supposed to, and of course, if they haven't and they want to, give them a chance. And that started getting built in again. So occasionally just listening to people, being observant, in a way it's, it's like being a sort of, this is your field, but a, a mini conductor. Waving your arms around doesn't really matter. But watching what people are doing and seeing what people are good at and what they're capable of being good at and where a little bit of help will get in a position where they can be good makes so much difference.
0: Margaret Thatcher was in many ways, it could be said, in her pomp at that time. What are your... What are your feelings now about working with her? How did you find her? I had a very interesting interview with John Whittingdale a year ago, and of course, he was very close to her. What are your recollections of working with her? Well, if if, if,
1: if my lot hadn't been successful in the June 1975 by election in what was then uh, Woolwich West, she probably wouldn't have been kept on as leader of the Conservative Party. People would begin to say, Why have we got her? Well, the answer we got her is she's willing to stand against Ted Heath. Uh, and then people preferred her to having Willie Whitelaw or Geoffrey Howard, people who came in yes. late. Uh, so I think we owe each other as much as anything. Uh, when she asked me to become a junior minister, Pond Life, she didn't need to know much about me. John Wakeham, the chief whip, had said, we want to have someone who's used the expression social partners without giggling. Uh, then uh, when the dear Linda Chalker stopped being minister for roads. Alan Clark was offered a job and said no, he wanted more promotion. He told me if they offer it you, don't take it. Well, I, I, I've got no prestige to lose. In fact, when Margaret <laughs> Thatcher first asked me to become a minister, uh, I got loads of letters from people saying, um, We've given up hope for ourselves. We've seen you've been appointed. There's hope for us yet. And others saying, We've never thought she had a sense of humour. But having read about your appointment, we see we were yeah. wrong.
0: Yeah.
1: She and I got to know I asked um, after five years to stop being a minister. I always volunteered not to be a minister. I didn't didn't come into parliament to be a minister. Uh, They said, what are you prepared to do? I said, if you ask me, I'd go to Northern Ireland or overseas development. So Margaret rang up a couple of days later and said, I understand you're happy to go to Northern Ireland. I said, yes, you can. I did. After a year, uh, unusually, I was told that three days in advance, when there was a reshuffle, I'd be out. I said, fine, I'll bring my pajamas and toothpaste back from Northern Ireland. And there's no need for the prime minister to waste her time talking to me, I'm perfectly content. Anyway, I was told on the flight back, got to go and see her. And she said, you know you're going? I said, yes, you don't mind? I said, no. Shall I leave? She said, no, if you go straight away, it looks like we had a row. So then started discussing a speech she was going to be giving to UNESCO in New York the following week. And uh, after about three quarters of an hour, she said, you can go now. And as I went out, she said to her private secretary, he's actually quite interesting, isn't he? So the idea that Margaret Thatcher knew me it was for the birds. I mean, we, we, we got on perfectly well. Um, he's actually quite interesting, isn't he? Yeah.
0: <laughs> That's a wonderful quote. I mean, you and your your wife, uh, Virginia, uh, you were a, a very prominent parliamentary double act for, for many years. And um, I, I just wonder, did that bring its own challenges? Were you ever able to get away from politics? Yeah, we, we, we spend most of our spare time in the Isle of Wight
1: in Easter and in August. Uh, we tend to spend... Uh, weekends in what was her constituency halfway between Westminster and Worthing and in fact during this lockdown it's the first time we've actually been in the cottage during weekdays we've, we've been here on Friday evenings Saturdays and Sundays now we've actually seen what happens on Mondays Tuesdays Wednesdays Thursdays and it's very exciting the, it, 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 it's interesting uh, we understand what each other might be going through we can stand by each other when life is rough and we don't have to speak politics at home. Unlike most MPs who have a, a, a trailing spouse who doesn't understand, we do. Uh, her aunt was married to Douglas Jay, who was the Labour cabinet minister, so we understand that. Um, some of our contemporaries, even some people we recruited into the Tory party, have become MPs. Some of our friends have become Labour, one one of my nieces became a Labour MP and a minister for a time. So it's it's, it's not a strange world to us. um, It has ups and downs. But on the other hand, I think I've... This is a bit of what my wife calls MLM, Me Lovely Me. I think I've done better doing
0: this for the last four decades than I would have done doing something else. Me Lovely Me was maybe what other people felt about you. You were knighted in the twenty. Thirteen was it, or twenty twelve? I have no clue. Uh, well, you anyway. You, you received a knighthood in the in the New Year's Honours list. Did you have any inkling that the little letter was going to drop through? The
1: I had box? absolutely no idea I was going to be knighted at all. And fifty years ago, if you did fifteen years in the House of Commons, you might be knighted if you're a male. Uh, twenty years, you might get a baronetcy. And 25 years in twenty five years, the House of Lords. That dropped away, and in effect, they abolished political honours. Uh, they didn't quite, because Gerald Kaufman got knighted and Peter Viggers got knighted and Nicholas Winter but in effect they abolished them. And then I think someone said, let's see if we can bring them back, and how can we do it in a way that doesn't provoke private eyes, tease everybody? So they picked Anne Begg, the loveliest Scottish Labour MP in Aberdeen, in a wheelchair. Yes, indeed. Who nobody noticed, because they can't give her a spinster um, damehood, so she had a DB, which is buried in the middle of the list, so no one noticed. And they had me top of the list, but because... Private Eye and I occasionally have worked together on campaigns. Private Eye didn't bother to notice. So now they've they've issued them quite regularly. But I I think they basically wanted to test the water. And the water was OK? Yeah, but also I think in part because I think mine was gazetted as for public service rather than political service. I probably voted against my party on more issues than anybody else, but I haven't done it in a way that caused offence. And normally, the party comes around or the government comes around a few years later and does what I wanted in the first place. So You're a trailblazer. No, I, I was probably wrong in my timing, if not on the issues.
0: <laughs> Would you say that you and your wife were, were culture vultures? Do you go to the theatre? Do you go to concerts?
1: Uh, well, when we were young, I um, think before we got married as well as afterwards. I would take her out for 10 shillings, which is 50 pence to the young. Uh, We'd buy a pair of tickets at the Old Vic, where the National Theatre then was, for two shillings each. We'd buy a fried egg sandwich each and she could pay her own bus fare home and I'd walk home. Um, And we used to go to everything that was on. Uh, She uh, prefers opera when she's working hard. When she was a minister with some tricky set of problems, she'd get up at three in the morning and play opera very loud. I'm not sure she ever listened to it. Uh, is geez. this a love of yours as well? Uh, love is a strong way of putting it. I, I didn't discover I had a voice till my father-in-law was seventy-five, and Virginia's sister decided that the family should put on a f- outdoor family performance of H.M.S. Pinafore in a, in a sort of open-air theatre he built himself. It wasn't much of a theatre, but it was. There was a um, a giggle during the chorus about the sisters and the cousins and the aunts because the <laughs> chorus were sisters and cousins and aunts. Uh, the house was brought <laughs> down by the French husband of one of the cousins. Who sang in his accent, for he is an English man? I, I won the part <laughs> of the captain in the audition, um, but unfortunately forgot that there were songs in the second half. So I had to, in my three cornered hat, hold, hold the things there. And and the worst thing was um, that there's a song there called Fair Moon to the I Sing, which yes. is a glorious song. It's got a high note somewhere at the end, or in the middle of it. And I, I got the doily cart production, and the professional singer ducked instead of soaring. He, he went down. He went down. So I thought he should have had his, 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 his tax double for that. Anyway, uh, I, I was going to go for it. And just before I went for it, a bird came out of a bush off key. So I haven't dared play back and see how much of a hash I, I made of it. And when was this? This is, uh, but he was born in 1921, so it must have been 1976. 19, yeah, 75th birthday. 19, 19, 19, 19, 1996. <laughs> thee I sing bright regent of the heavens say why is everything either at sixes or at sevens say why is everything either at sixes or at sevens I have lived hitherto
0: And you are a tenor. Uh, Well, all of us are baritones, right? I'm I'm a a
1: tenor baritone because there are plenty more basses. Yeah. But normally I try to sing songs, if I'm provoked, that don't really have tunes. So there's the glorious Flanders and Swan one.
0: I think we may be talking about them later. Well, in that that case, I'll I'll reserve my (laughs) thoughts, if my memory allows me. I, I think it's time for you to go into the wonderful Politics of Sound record shop. I hope you enjoy it. So, Sir Peter Bottomley, how was your visit to the Politics of Sound Record shop?
1: Well, the, the three things which I think matter a lot. What was your first choice? At the Drop of a Hat, which is Donald Swann
0: and Michael Flanders, are, um, we went to see it when it was on at the Fortune Theatre, I think. It was a, a review before it was an album. The album is just...
1: Yeah, it was, a... it was two people performing. And they, 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 they'd known each other at school but hadn't performed together, I don't think. Although the, the rumours that they had...
0: Well, that was your old school. Uh, in one of the schools. They, they, indeed. Yes, indeed, yeah. Westminster.
1: Neither of them stood up because Donald Swan was playing the piano and Michael Prans couldn't because he'd had polio. He was in a wheelchair, indeed. He in a wheelchair. And one day we were driving with our youngest child through Battersea and she looked up from reading a book of animal songs, which I happen to have here. And um... she said, Do you know anybody famous? I said, I do. She said, Name two. I said, John Major, Neil Kinnock, you name them, I know them. She's not a politician. Someone really interesting, like whom I said grammatically. <laughs> she said, like Michael Flanders. So I knew Michael Flanders, but he's dead. I know his widow, Claudia, who was brilliant at giving people advice on how to move with a wheelchair around the country, transport. Thing. Yes. And I know his daughter, Stephanie, who was a contemporary. How did of,
0: you know Michael Flanders? I can't remember. It of
1: one of these things. Um, then I said, hang on, clever clogs. And two minutes later, we stopped outside number 13, Outbridge Road, Battersea, knocked on the door. A woman came to the door. I said, Miss Don Swan here. She said no. So each Friday, knocked on the door. Third time he was there. I said, Mr Swan, I'm Peter Bottomley. My parents used to, up, used to live up the road. Oh, Jim Barbie. This is our daughter. She thinks you're famous. Would you mind having a photograph of the two of you? Donald wasn't very tall. She was shorter. So photograph photographed the two of them. I said, she's also got a copy of your book. Would you mind yes, autographing sir. it? So there is Donald Swan's signature in the Donald Swan's Swan songbook. And I said, I've got a third request. She said, what's that? I said, I'm presently Minister for Roads. My retired government car service driver used to drive a London bus. My present one used to drive a London bus. When I get thrown out or moved on, I'm supposed to give a six o'clock sherry swill for the civil servants. I'd prefer to give a one o'clock teetotal sing song. If I get the piano, will you come and play? Because I want to sing in trio with them a transport the of, delight, of delight. A song which my wife had on <laughs> Desdain Disc. So I think I'd choose the uh, At the Drop of a Hat or At the Drop of Another Hat.
0: A transport of delight. Some people like a motorbike, some say a tram for me, or for Bonnie, or oh, me lorry, they delay them down and deep. such means of locomotion seem rather dull to us, the driver and conductor of... A London, a London omnibus. omnibus. Hold very H- tight, please, tinting. Hold very tight, please, tinting. When you are lost in London and you don't know where you are, you'll hear my voice a calling. Balls further down the car, and very soon you'll find, find yourself inside the, the terminus. terminus in a London transport diesel engine. 97 horsepower omnibus. What is it that makes it such a favourite for you? There's obviously a nostalgic element. The, 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 there's, some, there's some really clever lines. And
1: if you take Noel Card, if you take uh, Gilbert, um, of, as of Gilden Sullivan, yes. the words are very, very clever. Um, in have some Madeira Madeira, you have uses of English construction, which would amuse people during their final year at university. If you take the uh, foreign songs, uh, there's a Greek one I can't even pronounce, there's the mysterious one called Je suis le And um, Tenebrou, I think, translates almost as mysterious or dark or, or something. And then there's the one which I have occasionally sung unasked and then seldom asked to sing it again, which isn't very long. Uh, Michael Flanders explained that to be popular in 1959 or whenever the show first came out, you had to have a foreign title like Valari or Que Sera, Sera which he translated yes. Only the Best Will Do. And he said that he discovered that Hulimakiti chi, in Tonga, that means no. If I ever have the money, it's to Tonga, I shall go. I interrupt to say it's not a very long song, we're <laughs> halfway through. For each lovely Tongan maiden there will gladly make a date. And by the time she said, Hulimakiti chi, 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 it's usually too late. ha, <laughs> <laughs> ha. <laughs> but but if, if, if you take some of the serious ones about um, uh, nuclear war, if you take some of the curious ones about the English, uh, in fact, I, I suspect we ought to bring one of them out on, on April twenty third to celebrate Shakespeare, with the English, the English,
0: the English at best. I wouldn't give tuppence for all of the rest. Of course, I mean, do you? There is a lot of social commentary in the songs, and also between the songs as well. There was there was a lot of little little introductions and stuff, terribly clever stuff going on. But, yeah, indeed, and, 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 and it's not just sort of... Well,
1: it's, 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 it, Tom Lehrer was around at the same sort of time, yeah. and he was also very clever. In fact, some of the songs that Franz Swan had are similar to the Tom Lehrer ones, the more serious ones about the, the, the nuclear cloud hanging over all of us. Franz um, Swan had The Ostrich bearing Its Head, and anyway, I, I could go on forever, but the, 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 there's good fun, good thinking,
0: and there are good people. How do you think it it stands up now? Do you think it's slightly dated? I don't
1: believe you could sing Mud, Mud, Glorious Mud without people being as interested in rocking and rolling as they would hearing Greece for the first time in a crowded cinema.
0: Right. No, I I love it. I mean, I I love Greece as well, but uh, it's something which I can tell that you have a huge affection for. Well, it's funny. And is there a is there a song particularly within it that is a a favourite of yours? Well
1: there, there are many. And sometimes I think about the um, the sea mammal which goes down to the Antarctic, is misled there. But I suspect I'd probably come back to the Transport of Delight, the big six wheeler scarlet painted diesel engine, nine hundred horsepower omnibus, horverty type please, ting ting or words to that effect.
0: wheeler scarlet painted London transport diesel engine 97 97 omnibus, please this came from a review this was a review were you ever involved either as a student or latterly in reviews were you involved in drama or i i, I was a
1: cultural waste of space and probably still am uh, I, I did want to become auburn one of auburn wall's poetry judges on the literary review uh, he used to he used to make a fortune from me um, and someone said some just said, you can't sue me for defamation. I said, why not? He said, you never sued Auburn in war. I said, well, first of all, what he writes about me may be true. Secondly, I don't mind. And thirdly, it's not compulsory. You're not going to make an exception. <laughs> uh, anyway, he, he heard I'd appointed a man called Peter Middleton, a postman, in my first constituency to be my official poet. And he then, maybe one of the poetry judges, so we used to get together once a month in a dive in Soho, go through 100, and, 100 or so entries, of which about eight were publishable, and drink some good Lebanese wine, and have a roaring time. So... I came to poetry uh, uh, more as a reader than as a, and judge as a, than as a writer. Um, I didn't act at school. I think I appeared in a house chorus singing Lyndon Lee uh, once. Wasn't asked again. I took part in a flute trio. Wasn't asked to do it again. Did, could you play the flute? I, I got lessons for a term and then sold it to take Virginia to a dance and then bought another one, then bought another one. I've got one in each of our houses. I once took one to a hospice. I was gonna give a, a music and words talk, waved my flute around as though I was Victor Borger with his piano, and I saw him, yes. by the way, when I was wandering around um, Melbourne in 1963. Uh, and the director came to me and said, there's one person here who thought they were coming to a concert, would you mind playing something? So I played something, and they said, do you want to go back to talking
0: again? <laughs> <laughs> yes thanks for bringing the flute but yeah but Flanders and swan they are huge favorites for you obviously and and, uh they they, they, they and people like them i I think that there there are enough serious
1: things in life uh, which you can set to music and make amusing and there are plenty of very funny things which have a sort of a, a, a melancholy side to them with Flanders and swan you just you can think seriously for a bit but basically you'll just smile because it is good clean entertainment
0: So your second album from the record shop, what is it? Time further out, Dave Brubeck. I don't fully understand
1: syncopation. I don't understand unsquare dance. I don't understand all the other rhythms. And no one's ever made me remember for more than about five minutes why you can have signatures which can end in a three or a four or a multiple of four, but you can't have five or seven
0: or eight. Yeah, exactly. Well, I could explain it to you, but I I think it would take the the podcast off on a slightly different tangent. But Dave Brubeck was was the master of uh, compound time signatures. What is it that you love about his music in particular? Well, I I think it probably goes back to a film called The Reluctant Debutante with... uh,
1: I forget who the actor was. Was it Belafonte or something? Anyway, uh, who was explaining to um, a young English girl about rhythm, And once you start getting into rhythms that aren't conventionally Western, uh, whether they're Far Eastern uh, sort of thing you have with shadow puppets in uh, Malaysia, or they're what you might get in many parts of Africa, let alone uh, the conventional dance, now familiar dance rhythms from South America, I think you begin to shake yourself up a bit. Uh, and you have to start thinking a bit. Well, you don't have to think, you can enjoy it, or you can be mystified by it. And there are some kinds of succession, which must have been roughly what Bach brought to people with his um, fugues and the kind of way he took a, a mathematical approach to music, you know, doing it upside down or inside out or backwards. It, it, it made people who didn't know much what was going on appreciate it, but it made those who did know much about it appreciate it even more. Even more and I think with Dave Brubeck... Um, with his uh i suppose rhythm time signatures more than rhythms but and the way he could change them around is rather like the more conventional way in western
0: music of, of changing from one key to another and then possibly ending up back where you thought you were going to start well indeed and of course he's he's best known for take five of course which is another compound uh, time signature but i i know your your favorite is this un, unsquare dance What is it about that tune which has such a a delight for you in it? Well, it's a bit like Scott Joplin in a way as well.
1: It it just sort of fits. Um, I don't know much about music. And much of what I don't know about is people like Haydn. And if I listen to Haydn and Haydn and Haydn, Haydn sounds the same. I think with Scott Joplin, actually, quite a lot of it sounds the same. With Dave Brubeck, it never, ever sounds the same. It's always different. It's always something that to be appreciated. And I'm, I'm glad that at least one of my grandchildren has, has taken up the sticks and might be able to knock out some rhythms
0: for me later on. Do you think you're a frustrated drummer? Would you love to play the drums? No, I'm a frustrated flautist, I think. <laughs> Did you ever get to see them live? No, I didn't. Uh,
1: I, one of my regrets. But I, I can tell you something different. Well, I'll tell you two different things, both of which you're welcome to cut out. Uh, one was like I couldn't go to Princess Diana's funeral because I was getting somebody off death row in America. So my brother-in-law went, and he claims that when they walked out, Elton John said to George Michael, do you know Mrs. Bottomley? Which I thought was sort of one way round for fame. Uh, I was at a vegetarian's, I'm a half-vegetarian, which means I'm a half meaty, uh, lunch at the House of Commons, but Paul McCartney was being mobbed at one corner of the room, so I stayed away. He eventually came across to me and said, Hello, you're Peter Bottomley. So I said, I can play the same game, you're Paul McCartney. He said, uh, <laughs> Have we met before? I said, We've been the same place. He said, Do you remember where or when? I said, I do. I think maybe in January 1966, when I was in the upper circle at a big cinema in Houndsmith, two rows in from the back, three seats in from the right, with uh, Virginia is now my wife, and you're on the stage playing with your friends. He said, I remember it well.
0: <laughs> this was with the Beatles? Yeah. I mean, it must have been fairly near the, the, the time when they stopped touring.
1: 66, uh, 67, I think, was when they, when they stopped. They, they, they came out to Cambridge, I think, in 64. I date myself by having François Ady singing uh, in French and in English at one of our dances, which was, uh, I forget if that's one that my mm-hmm.
0: flute got sacrificed for. Wow. You saw the Beatles. What, what was, the, was the atmosphere absolutely frenetic? It, it was, but you get the same thing
1: um, almost in the roll Albert Hall with Carl Denver singing Wimway. And people enjoy performances, or, or the last night of the proms. And people shouldn't get overexcited about younger people greeting the Beatles. Think of them singing Land of Hope and Glory. <laughs> You've been to the last night of the proms? We we we've been to lots of in various roles. I, I had an old um, girlfriend who's about eighty, who had a pair of seats. So we went occasionally with her. Occasionally went with the BBC, um, but it's it's almost as so much fun with six people in, in a room behind, in front of a television set.
0: But Dave Brubeck, what do you think his legacy will, will be ultimately? I think Dave Brubeck's legacy will depend on people like me.
1: If we don't talk about him, people won't hear, because he doesn't fit naturally into pop music world. You aren't going to hear him on Classic FM. It's always strikes me as odd that radio channels that include reasonably orchestral music or even classical music have lots of theme tunes from films they don't bring in, outside of a jazz section, yeah. some of the great jazz people. And I think people, program makers should try, if they're putting 20 things together over a two hour period, to drop in a couple of things which are out of the ordinary genre, which people who appreciate sound or music or rhythm or uh, melody or harmony might take to. And if you come on to our third choice, I'll, I'll, I'll sort of give you a bit about why I think that matters. Mm.
0: Now, your last selection from the shop is included in a collection of pieces by this composer, but it's really this one piece that I think is a particular favourite of yours. Who is it by? and What's the piece?
1: It's by Michael Armstrong Gibbs, officially Cecil Armstrong Gibbs, but he hated the name Cecil. He didn't so like he it. Didn't I like knew that. It, yeah, and he, uh, in 1956, 55, I think it was Walter de la Mare, the great poet who incidentally won the Carnegie Prize for Children's Stories, uh, died. And Armstrong Gibbs wrote this Threnody, which is for a string quartet and string orchestra. I'd never heard of Armstrong Gibbs. I'd heard of Walter Delamere, although I hadn't known that Walter hated his first name and always called himself Jack. (laughs) Uh, I'm fortunate to have Peter, which I'm very happy with. I heard it with my wife in Arundel Castle during a, a festival. Well, the Arundel Festival is an annual event. Uh, it may not take place this year, but it, it, it is. And I've, I've seen in July or August, a frightfully cold day, some jolly Shakespeare comedy, where people are supposed to say hello to each other. We used to hug each other and almost perform improper acts in front of everybody to keep warm up because it was so cold. <laughs> but this, 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 the um, Trinity to Walter de la was inside. And I forget now the... Um, the leader of the group who were playing it what wasn't done with the string orchestra it was, I think there were about eight people uh, playing, and I thought it was brilliant. it's um, in a sense moody, it has its ups and downs it's um, I, I don't know enough about uh, string quartets, all the challenges they face when they're playing, but I think this is accessible music, but it can carry people through. And it's the kind of thing which, if I weren't to have um, uh, the meditation from Tyus at my memorial service, I'd probably ask people if they could spare the minutes to put on this trinity, because I think it'll make people feel that they're there for a serious purpose. But dying, if you're lucky, in old age is not the worst thing that can happen to you.
0: Well, Armstrong Gibbs, uh, he had the most extraordinary life. He was born in 1889, and his father was head of a, a soap company, best known well, for... So,
1: so, 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 so it's one way of putting it, and toothpaste, to be honest. Yes, I, I, it,
0: it, well, yes, it, Gibbs SR Toothpaste was, of course, what, what uh, his father was known for. His father's methods of child-rearing... I, th- I, th- I think, honestly, people don't want to hear it. And it's I've so heard, bad. I, I,
1: it, it, it's just one of those things which... Um, I don't think it explained a great deal, but it might explain something. I, I think it was uh, best drawer of veil... And you, I, I don't think Armstrong was happy. And I don't. I think he was he was lucky to have been hauled out. Um, well, hauled out, first of all, to go and do history um, at Winchester and then Trinity College, Cambridge. Yes. Uh, uh, where he did well. I look up to him for that. Uh, he was then about to buy into a... a Prep school as a principal uh, owner. And
0: then there was this extraordinary. Well, the
1: headmaster, headmaster, is, headmaster is going to retire. Uh, they want to put on a musical performance. Uh, he gets Walter de la Mer to write the lyrics. Adrian Bolt turns up and says, You've got to come to the Royal College of Music. And one thing leads to another. It's just, it's just one of those miraculous s- swerves in the road. Everything just fell in his lap at the same time. And th- then he became really famous. Uh, one of the people who was a contemporary of his at the Royal College of Music uh, was Sir Hugh Allen. And if I can give you a diversion, which, again, you're welcome to cut out if you want. When I was at Cambridge, my good cousin Enid, who then must have been about 60 or 70, her father had been a fellow of Trinity College, Cambridge, having never been to university in his life. He helped to develop geology and geophysics. We used to borrow her car. We heard after she died, from one of her first cousins, that she'd been withdrawn from Oxford, forming an unsatisfactory musical relationship. When she died, by her bed was this very good for radio um, portrait by John Sargent and my father couldn't identify it so he sent a copy of the National Portrait Gallery who wrote back saying it's Sir Hugh Allen at which point the uh, first cousin who survived said well unsatisfactory suitable musical relationship because Sir Hugh Allen was, was, was a great developer of amateur choirs was in Oxford and it's quite clear that good cousin Enid had a passion for him whether he had a passion for her too, we don't know. We don't know. But anyway, he, he was a contemporary of Armstrong Gibbs. <laughs> There's a great Englishness to his music. Would you Would you agree with that? I would too? agree with that. And the, 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 the one collection is called uh, Dale and Fells, I think. Yes. And the, 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 most of them are miniatures. The, the, you know, he did some larger scale things and he set a... I think, he, I, think I read somewhere he set... Uh, words by 50 poets to music. So he had a prodigious output. He he's very famous in his time and has slipped almost completely um, in, in the same way that uh, uh, Gerald Finzi slipped a long way out and then now to come back. I hope in time that... But these are wonderful you, composers. That, indeed. I, I, you wouldn't be that famous during your lifetime if you weren't interesting and good. When people lose interest,
0: they shouldn't forget what's good. He was well known as a... As a song composer and his relationship with Walter de la Mare, I mean, he set so many of his of his poems, and it's interesting that you've picked a, a, a lyrical piece, but one without words or lyrics in it.
1: Well, the reason I picked it is the first one I heard. So, and, and no, no doubt, if I'd if I'd, if in the right circumstances I'd heard one of the songs or the poem set to music, I might have chosen that. But it's happened. This was. Um, I don't want to say beyond atmospheric, but it was it was a great occasion. It was a great setting. It was good music. And for one of those reasons, I remembered it. If, all of those things came together for you at that moment. They all came together. And, and I don't normally remember poetry, but I remember once um, I, I took the widow of a, one of my father's friends to a good dinner after he died. And I said how much I appreciated the poem he'd written about his approaching death. And she said, could I remember the lines? So I gave them my vague memory of them. A year later, I met her at a garden party and she said, can do it again. And as we, I started, a middle-aged man heaved up. And uh, it goes, what should I do when I'm called to die? And I'll say too soon my time's ended. And it ends by saying, too quickly the years have gone by, so of done of all that I intended. Um, anyway, I finished. He said, that's lovely. Who wrote that? I said, who are you? He said, I'm the Earl of Limerick. I said, your father wrote it. He said, how do you know? I said, I, th- I thought I heard it as a memorial service where you read a lesson, you plot. But sometimes it's a setting... It's what you hear and whether it sticks and by chance this has stuck and I'm really glad it has.
0: I just wonder what advice you would have for the young Peter Bottomley entering Parliament 45 years ago after all you have been through, all you have seen. Golly.
1: I think you'd have a mixture of patience and impatience. And for example, I don't know when people may hear this, but I've got a question to the Prime Minister in a few days' time. What do I want to ask him? Well, I don't know what I want to ask him until I actually stand up but I want them to know two or three of the causes that matter to me. And if they can brief the prime minister on those, normally the problems get solved by the time I get to stand up. And there's one which is a, a, a home for military people and their families who've had difficulties during this coronavirus problem. And within a day of the prime minister's office, well, I might ask, it got solved. So I think I'd say, first of all, try to tell people how they can make things better. And secondly, never, ever claim credit for what you've helped achieve,
0: because people trust you more and you can achieve more. I think you love cricket and you love sport. And at the moment, to use a cricketing metaphor, you are 45, not out. Do you think, like Margaret Thatcher, would you you like to go on and on? I think... I know I'm subject to what the electorate do, the selectorate do, the good lord does,
1: the doctor, the wife, and whoever knows who else. I think if I'm doing enough good, if I'm having enough fun, and if the things I fail at are important enough to try, why stop? And I think one of the oldest fuzz of the house went on to the 90-somethings. I'm not sure I'm going to aim for that, but who knows. It's a bit like my answer to the Queen when she said, after slightly fewer years in politics, has it changed much? And I said, can't we agree it's like a river? You look at it, it looks the same, it's always
0: different. Sir Peter Bottomley, thank you very much for being on The Politics of Sound. The
1: Politics of Sound.
0: My thanks to Sir Peter Bottomley for being my guest and also to Lady Bottomley for the great cake and drinks. We'll be back on the 1st of August when my guest will be the Conservative MP for Bournemouth West, Connor Burns. Don't forget, you can keep up with all the Politics of Sound news on Twitter. You can find us at politics underscore sound. Look after yourselves, keep safe, and we'll see you next month on the Politics of Sound.